Every now and then you got to let them use the talent God's given them, uh, show off a little bit for the glory of God. Well, if you weren't in a, a Christmas spirit mood, I pray that that helped you get there a little bit a few days into December. Uh, here's the deal. I lost a bet. Uh, I am not a Cowboys fan. My, my father has never been more ashamed of me. And sometimes your poor decisions come with you into Sunday mornings. And uh, that's where I'm at. So I'm preaching in a stallback jersey because I made a bet with my friend who is a Cowboy fan that if they beat my Seahawks, that I would wear it. And here I am, being a man of my word. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the second thing you need to know, and this is something I need to tell you, I woke up really sick this morning. And if, uh, you know, something were to happen, I will have to dry clean this. But he, he's enjoying it. Uh, for those of you that are Cowboy fans, congratulations. I found out we had a lot of Florida State fans earlier this year that came out of the woodwork. So, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, and, and there's some that have been Florida State fans for a long time. But to be clear, I knew of one in the church. And then I found out there were like five. But congratulations on your championship. I do hope the SEC gets left out of the playoff. That's the only thing that would be right at this point. All things secondary. Uh, yeah, Georgia's not going to be there. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, it's just not going to happen. They can sit this one out. Um, now let's get to something a little bit more unifying. All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. We're in a series called Do You Believe in Miracles? Christmas is a story of God doing the miraculous. God choosing to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Famously, uh, before I was born, there was a hockey team that was a significant underdog. There was a young, uh, didn't have his hair dyed, golden-voiced man named Al Michaels, who at the end of the most unlikely of wins, exclaimed over the intercom uh, after the U.S. beat Russia in hockey, do you believe in miracles? How many of you remember that? How many of you have seen it on YouTube? Heard it in a replay on ESPN. It, it wasn't supposed to happen. And Al Michaels shouted out, do you believe in miracles? Well, the Christmas story is that. It's a story of a miracle, but it is not the same as the U.S. hockey team beating Russia. See, for many of us, our understanding of a miracle is something that is unexplainable within the laws of nature are highly unlikely statistically to happen. But for me as a believer especially during the Christmas season, I want to communicate to you that a miracle is simply defined as an act of God. It's God choosing to do what only God can do, which means it's therefore miraculous. Its origin is not derived in human effort that has statistically got odds stacked against it. It is derived from God choosing to do on our behalf and for us, what we cannot do for ourselves. This season, we are going to look and celebrate the story of God acting for the good of his enemies so that he could call them his children. And over the next several weeks, we're going to explore the ways that God predicted this move to bring us the Savior and the redemption that we all need. Two of these four weeks, we're going to look at a prophet who is perhaps the prince of prophets because he is the most quoted prophet in the entirety of our New Testament. 
Over 21 times, this prophet's text and his prophetic words are brought back to the minds of the readers as they look into the Gospels. Perhaps no more in the New Testament than the author Matthew, who was writing his gospel specifically to connect the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so repeatedly, Matthew calls back to Old Testament writers to point to the Jewish people that he was writing to that this was the fulfillment of these prophecies that were to reveal, to, to, to allow us to see the coming Messiah that we would perhaps miss if we were not paying attention. Isaiah writes these words 700 years in advance of the birth of Christ. Now we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 today. So if you have your Bible, open up to Isaiah 7. And we're going to look at one verse in Isaiah 7. Because in that one verse and in that one prophetic text we get enough controversy to take up an entire series of sermons. But instead, we're going to look into some detail into this sign and son and savior that is revealed in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, if you're struggling to find the book of Isaiah because you've not discovered the index in your Bible, let me give you some context into what's happening in chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah so that you don't think that I'm cherry-picking one verse with one prophetic idea that may mean nothing 700 years later to Jesus' birth and the way in which he would come. Let me explain what's happening. In Isaiah chapter 7, there is a uh, war that is breaking out around Jerusalem. At this point in time, there's a 200-year divide that has been existing. And as a result, there is pressure around the southern kingdom's uh, king named King Ahaz. King Ahaz had the southern kingdom. That was uh, two of the tribes that had stayed faithful after Solomon's death to the D David's line of God bringing a Messiah and king through that line. Now, that's a lot. Let me explain it a little bit better than what I'm stumbling and stammering through uh, for a second. Uh, David was promised by God that God would establish his throne forever and that he would bring the Messiah through the line and lineage of David. David has a son named Solomon who is wise, wiser than anyone on earth. He threw the most grand parties, had more wealth than anyone in that time, built massive, beautiful temples and houses, and just did everything over the top. Over, over the top uh, with, as You remember the commercial with the guy that was sitting with the gold chain, and he had a miniature giraffe, and he said opulence. That, that's like the word for Solomon's life. Like That's what he did. Everything was opulent. Everything was over the top. Everything was the best and the finest. He also writes for us texts like, uh, it's meaningless, Life, all of it, and all of its trappings, and the biggest of parties that you could throw, and the stacks of money that you could stack. If you look at finding significance and worth in something that's lasting in those things, let me tell you, having done and experienced all of it, it's meaningless. So he, he reigns, and then he dies, and his son Rehoboam decides that he doesn't want to stay in line, but wants to go and take the throne. So he seizes and divides the family of God into two families. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom has King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, and the northern kingdom has a different king that's mentioned in Isaiah 7 that we're not going to talk much about named Pekah. So that nation, uh, the northern kingdom, and another kingdom called Syria, are you tracking with me? That's north of them in a place called Damascus, have a bigger bully named Assyria that's to the north of them. Okay? So you have Assyria, big bully on the block, 
Syria, smaller bully on the block, and the northern kingdom, the family that went off and has divided the family for 200 years. And Assyria threatens Syria and the northern kingdom with completely crushing and taking them over. So, even though they're not necessarily friends, they become frenemies. And they begin to unite to take on Assyria. You're tracking with me. But they realize when they do a head count of their armies and their, military, and their military's clout that they don't have enough to beat Assyria. So then they send down at first an invitation for the southern kingdom to unite. But Ahaz doesn't want to unite with them. So he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to join in with you against the bigger bully, Assyria. So, still with me? They then say, well, if you're not going to help us, then we're going to fight you. Because they know that together they can beat up the southern kingdom and they can take out Ahaz. So they unite to come and take out Ahaz in the southern kingdom. So Ahaz then sends a bribe and a letter to Assyria's king to pay him off to take them out so that they won't take him out. Even though the king of Assyria has taken over everything and trying to kill everybody. Right after he sends that bribe... The prophet Isaiah shows up and comes into the room. Comes in, into the room. In Isaiah chapter 7, we get this story. Let me make sure that my Bible's there. Isaiah chapter 7, we get this story of Isaiah coming into the room as he is being heavily pressed, Ahaz, by everything going on around him. Isaiah 7. Let's uh, pick it up in uh, verse 4. Isaiah 7, verse 4. Can you skip there with me? Uh, tell him to stop worrying. This is God's words to Ahaz. Stop worrying. How many of you, when you're worried, enjoy someone coming and telling you, stop it? How many of you have discovered that this is not a parental technique that works with your children? Stop it, right? Don't worry. Why? Why? That's the important part. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned out embers. God's talking smack. <laughs> What's he saying? They got smoke, but they don't have fire. A lot of us are afraid of smoke, but there's no fire to the smoke. It's just a sign that the fire has been extinguished. And literally what God is saying is, look... They're being put aside. They're being done away with. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Don't you sweat them. Don't you worry about them. King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Ramali. Don't, don't even sweat those kings. Don't worry about it. And then if you skip forward to verse 10, this is what he goes on to say. Later, after telling them, don't worry, I've got you. you, you you've, even though you've done it imperfectly, you, you've stayed faithful to the Davidic line. I'm faithful in covenant with David. I'm going to bring the Messiah through that line. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to care for you because I've got a promise on your life that is greater than your behavior in the moment. So he comes back to him later, and the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. So he, he, he does this rare invitation. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4 that it's not appropriate for us to constantly ask God for a sign. That we're to live by faith and not just by sight. So a lot of us, we only do things if we get a sign. That's DMX theology, not biblical theology. God, give me a sign. Anyway, some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. 
But my point is, X was talking about always needing a sign, and we're not encouraged to always ask for a sign. You're not Gideon. You don't get to throw out a wool every time you got to make a decision. Sometimes by faith, based on the character of God, we are asked to trust God, even when we don't understand what God is doing with what we can see. But in this moment, there's a unique invitation that's given to Ahaz. Ask God for a sign, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want. As high as the heavens or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. Let me ask you a question. If you were given this unique invitation, what would be your sign? What would be the thing that you would ask God for to prove his faithfulness, his character, his goodness, his constancy in your life? Have you ever considered the invitation that was laid before Ahaz. Now, many of us think that this is pious Ahaz. Ahaz is, I, I, I won't put God to the test. I, I, I'm not going to ask God to, to do something for a little person like me. But, but in reality, this is not in the text a statement of a pious Ahaz. This is a statement of a king whose heart does not trust in the Lord. He's already paid off another king. His confidence in them making it through another season into another holiday is the fact that he believes that that king is going to take care of him better than his God's going to take care of him. I frequent the story a lot because I think it's one of the mile marker moments of my life, but there have been a couple of times where my wife and I have felt the Lord prompt us to give literally all of our worldly possessions away. I don't say that as a prescribe, that this is something that you should do. But we've had some very clear convictional moments where we felt like God asked us to put our entire present in his hands. And we've done that. And uh, the first time I did that, we were living in California. We were broke. Morgan was pregnant. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing, how we were going to make it. We had been responsible and saved up a grand total of $7,000, which will get you a number three combo at McDonald's in California. And we, uh, I felt the Lord prompting us to give everything that we had, literally, to the, to the Lord. And I had this thought come through my mind when I was trying to rationalize what God was calling me to do. The thought was, well, my dad has done really well financially, and if we really get into a pickle, then I'm sure he'll figure it out, and he'll take care of me. And I felt immediate conviction from God saying to me, boy, if you would trust me in the way that you trust in your earthly father, I would show you things that you've never seen. And I, I bring that up because Ahaz is in a season where he trusts in an earthly king more than he trusts in the king of kings. And as a result of it, he thinks he's good because an earthly king has some power that's somehow going to save him, protect him, guide him, keep him from what he is going through. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. Then Isaiah said, well, listen, well, you royal family of David, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of God as well? And we get this prophecy. Since Ahaz wouldn't ask for, for a sign from God, we get a 700-year-old prophecy about the line of the Messiah that was coming through the lineage of David in verse 14. Look at it with me. It says this, all right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Three things in verse 14 that lay out this sign, 700 years in advance of the coming of the Messiah. Number one, we will have a sign, the virgin will conceive. Number two, 
we will have a son. And number three, she will conceive a son. Number three, his name will be Emmanuel, which is God with us, which means he's the Savior that has come to save us. So he gives us three things. A sign, a son, a Savior. A sign, a son, a Savior. Here's the sign that God gives. There will be a sign, a son, a Savior. Now, I'd love to tell you that we're going to cover all three of those. We're going to cover the sign. Because the second we look at what the sign is, it should raise some questions as to how in the world that happened. The sign, the sign. It says, look, a virgin will conceive a child. When you think about signs, uh, the point of a sign is to signal and mark something that is coming down the road. So if you're coming up on an exit, there's a sign. And that sign will say, you know, there's a Bucky's or a Boosie's or whatever you call it. There's a, a McDonald's, there's a Taco Bell. Uh, there's really good healthy choices off to the right. And it lets you know that down the road... If you turn, you're going to find those options. So it's foretelling what is to come. Well, the same is true of biblical signs. They mark what's ahead. They give you a reason to look out for this thing that's coming that you don't want to miss out on. The Old Testament prophecies of Jesus are like road signs on the side of the road. They are communicating that something is coming down the road that you need to pay attention to. Now, this sign is a unique sign, but Matthew points back to it in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says this, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his, what prophecy is he speaking of? The answer is Isaiah, look, the virgin, he's quoting it now, will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew points back and says that sign that was marking something to come down the road is now something that I'm telling you has happened. The son has come, the, the virgin has conceived, and as a result, we have Emmanuel who is God with us. Now, this sign is very unique, and that's part of the point. Signs aren't meant to be camouflaged. In fact, the frustration is whenever you're driving down the road and something's overgrown a sign and you can't see it and you miss what's coming up in advance. You miss your turn. You miss your turnaround. Next thing you know, you meant to end up in you know, Aspen, Colorado, and you're in a completely different spar, uh, part of land because you got it wrong and took a wrong turn. And th that's the whole point. Signs are meant to stick out. They're meant to grab your attention. And this sign would surely grab attention. Imagine reading the story today. Young teenage girl, pregnant, but still virgin. That naturally, culturally, would raise a lot of eyebrows for us to go, that ain't, that ain't how that works. That, that's not how this is supposed to happen. The virgin will conceive. This is quite the prophecy, quite the prediction. Is it believable? If you're a logical person, that's a good question. God doesn't just simply call his shot once in our Bibles. God tends to call, especially the major events of Scripture, repeatedly. We see him pointing ahead and saying, it's coming, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, there's something very interesting that happens right after the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, God says this to the serpent. 
I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, that's the way the NLT reads it. But if you go back to the good old KJV and to the ESV, you find it a little bit different. It says, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman will be against you. And if you look at it in the original language, the idea that's being communicated is the seed of the woman. Now, why is that interesting? Because the way pregnancy happens is that the lady carries an egg that is then inseminated by the seed of a man. What God is saying in Genesis chapter 3 is he is going to do something different, and he is going to bring about a son that is different, that's not going to come from the first father that failed Adam, but it's going to come from the greater Adam. Adam, who will make a new way for all of us to now live in fellowship and communion with God. Essentially, what I'm trying to communicate to you is that there's reason to believe that Genesis 3.15 is God calling Isaiah 7.14 before we ever get to Isaiah 7.14 and before Matthew ever points to the fact that it happened. I get that it's hard to believe, but if you believe in a God that can do the miraculous, then, then there has to be some tension that goes, okay, if God's calling this repeatedly across Scripture, then, then, then maybe he's possibly capable, capable of doing such great things. See, this Genesis 3 prophecy is being connected to Isaiah 7, predicting that a Messiah would come to right what had gone wrong through our first father, Adam. Now, I'm going to give you some more apologetic proofs in just a minute, but let me explain to some of you who are beginning to think, what is the point of a sermon on the virgin birth? This is really that important. Let, let me answer that question. Why does the virgin birth matter? Well, the resurrection would not happen if Jesus was not born of a virgin. Because if Jesus was born of the common way that you and I were born, then that would mean that he was born in sin. That's a scriptural concept that is taught all throughout scripture. If he is born in sin, then we're told in Romans 3.23 that the wage of sin is death, which means he deserved to die, which would mean that in order for him to be raised and resurrected from the dead, God would have to change the rules and be unjust and raise someone who was a sinner who was justly dying from the death even because they weren't as bad of a sinner as you and I. <laughs> but, but the point is, one sin separates us from God, and one sin causes us to be justly due death. So, so if you say the virgin birth is not important, what you are saying is that the resurrection could not have happened. The two go hand in hand. You see, the wage of sin is death. The day you eat of this tree, God warned in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, you will surely die. The literal understanding in Genesis 2, 17 is that the death process begins whenever you turn in sin and partake of this tree. That is something that you and I are familiar with and have been born into. So because we are born in sin, we are born on a journey of life that is on a road to the end being death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 23, it says this. So you see... Just as death came into the world through a man, who is that man? Adam. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through a, another man who is not like us, who is different. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to our first father, Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given. This is a breakdown of this very concept. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes 
back. So the, 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 the breakdown of the story is laying out for us this truth, this reality, this miracle that God was going to move and cause a woman's womb to, to, to conceive, to, to cause a woman's womb to bring forth a son, a child that is not born in the same way of Adam, that is fully God, that predates his conception, comes into the world as Emmanuel, lives and walks among us, fulfilling the law, not not saying the law was wrong, not saying that the law doesn't condemn us as sinners and it's, it's, it's off and culturally we've, we've evolved and we've just, no, but we, we are condemned under the law so the law had to be fulfilled and Christ has fulfilled the law so now in Christ we get what we don't deserve and that is eternal life with God. It's essential because without it there is no hope of resurrection for Christ and there is no hope for eternal life for us. Naturally then, this makes the miraculous conception uh, of one of significant debate and attack. Because if you have something that is essential doctrine, you can guarantee that it will be culturally and demonically attacked as being unbelievable, as being unreasonable. So why? what are some of the attacks that come against the idea of virgin birth? Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, when it says that the virgin will conceive and have a son, the word that is used for virgin is the word alma. Alma, literally translated, means a woman of childbearing age who is not yet uh, married or not yet had physical interaction. Now, many non-virgin birth believers will say that Alma was never meant to be articulated as a virgin conceiving or a virgin having a child. However, I think there's reason to believe that that is not true. And let me give you some reasons. The Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 is Alma. This rare noun is used seven times in the Hebrew Bible. It signifies a young woman, a girl, or an unmarried maiden. We see it across several texts. If you scan the QR code, you'll get these texts so that you can do your own research and not just assume that the preacher who's half sick in a cowboy jersey on stage has done everything correctly. Genesis 24.43 is brought up. Exodus 2.8, Isaiah 7.14, Psalm 68.26, Proverbs 30.19. Song of Songs uh, 1-3, Song of Songs 6-8. The focus of Alma is on youth, many will argue, not virginity. Which I argue and believe is us taking our culture and putting it into the text of the Bible. Culturally, to be an Alma, they believed meant that you had abstained from sex. You have a shame culture that you're living in in this time. In place, And it was important if you were a daughter that you would uh, be given in marriage, that you would uh, not shame your family, and so that you would be highly protected and very much in the house and around the house until the point of your betrothal, which would then be a one-year process that would be preparing you to marry what would be a near stranger that your parents had set up for you. Um, if this went wrong, if something was off, if you were not a virgin on your wedding night, then there would be great shame and reason for divorce and public shame publicly. No woman wanted her family to go through this kind of shame. So to assume that this was just kind of like in our days where all of us know, in theory, you know, we're supposed to wait until we're married. And in theory, we know that culturally most don't. 
It doesn't change the line that the Bible calls us to, that we're to abstain from sexual relationship with each other until the covenant of marriage is made. Not, not well, we're married in God's eyes. God's eyes is you've made a covenant before God and before witnesses together. Anything else is a shortcut, and you bringing demonic baggage into a relationship that's going to have to get outworked once the commitment is made and the luster of the new relationship and sexual relationship is gone. Are you tracking with me? Let me be very clear to you. And by God's grace, and probably because my teeth were as crooked as railroad tracks, and I went through uh, some really bad acne, me and my wife were versions on our wedding night. That's where we were. That's where we were. I've been with one woman my entire life. My plan is to be with that woman until I die. And to be honest with you, if she goes on to be with the Lord without me, I'm going to be a daggum wreck. And I don't think that I have any amount of ability to think that I'm going to get into another relationship with another person at any point in time personally because I I just, I'm difficult. (laughs) I just am. And many of you have worked with me long enough to know that's a difficult person. It was a miracle the first time he was able to get married, and I just don't know. It's never going to happen again. Culturally, we may believe that you know, sexual promiscuity is the norm, but culturally, it was not the norm in this time. Uh, culturally, they believe that Alma was associated with the word virgin. If you go down the etymological trail, which is a big word for saying study of words, you then get over to Matthew's version of it that we read just a minute ago, where Matthew quotes the prophet back, but he's writing and quoting him in Greek. What's the word that he uses in Greek? Well, the word is parthenos, parthenos. Why does that matter? Well, Paul uses Parthenos to describe the fidelity of the church to Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it is associated as meaning culturally the word virgin. My point is, whether we think it's probable or possible, the scriptures are clear. They profess that the virgin has conceived, and as a result of it, we have a son who is our Savior that has come. Let me give you just a few more fun, quick sidebars. Consider this. Why does Joseph stay with Mary? Now, I understand that for many of you, there are great people that have done miraculous and great things, that have worked through infidelity and overcome it in your relationships. But Joseph had one shot at really getting out of this relationship. He's betrothed to Mary, but he is not, at this point in time, uh, trapped into having to raise a kid that's not his, into having to deal with infidelity. And let's just be honest. There's a difference between being a boyfriend and a girlfriend and someone cheats, that hurts, versus you're engaged or you're married and then they cheat. Uh, that, that infidelity stings deep. Uh, my wife has told me that that would be the last day on earth that I live. <laughs> and she means it. What, what would it take, what would it take for a young betrothed man to a woman that he's been preparing a house for that then finds out she is pregnant and it is not his, what would it take for him to stay? I don't know, the Bible says an angelic appearance of an angel standing beside his bed and saying, Joseph, don't leave her, this is a move of God and a miracle of God. It, it may take something like that for an event like that to happen. That seems somewhat Logical. Now, you'll have some people, professors, uh, teachers, 
uh, people that think they're really smart that are like, that's illogical. What's great is to begin to go down the path of what they think is logical about the origins of man or about the miracles of God and what actually did or didn't happen. One of my favorite is a Nobel Peace winning scientist who was asked about the origins of life and why it wasn't created by a God who was behind its creation. They instead, Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist, this is the best award you can give to the smartest and most elite scientist. They asked him, what do you believe is the origin of man if it's not God that created man? And this Nobel Peace winning scientist said, well, I don't think we can rule out aliens coming and seeding the earth with life. So I'm just asking what's more logical. God miraculously moving and bringing to us a son who was not like us but would live amongst us so that he could save us or some scandal, some cover up, that would lead to multiple miracles that would then have to be disproved and walked away from. The blind have seen. The lame, the lame, they now walk. The mute speak. There were cowards who became witnesses to a resurrection that died bearing witness to that resurrection. Why? Because God has brought us a son. A son who was our Messiah. A son who was our substitute. Who was able to take our sin to the cross so that in him, by grace, through faith, we could be forgiven of our sin. In this Christmas season, I invite you to a manger in a little town of Bethlehem where a teenage betrothed woman to a guy named Joseph conceived and had a son who is not like you and me. I, I invite you to a Savior who is not able to save you because his example that you follow in with good works will then lead you to a level of self-righteousness that means that you can be saved, but a Savior who is your substitute, who doesn't say try harder, but says submit faster, and invites you to submit what's broken, imperfect, out of place, cut off from God and justly so to his cross so that through his sacrifice you could truly be made new. We have a hope and it comes and starts in the miracle of Christmas that was prophesied 700 years in advance in the book of Isaiah and was called Moments right outside the Garden of Eden in man's most significant moment of failure. This is our God. This is what he does. Our prayer team's going to come forward. If we can pray with you, we would love to do so in this season. Many of you are in a season where you need a miracle. Well, we don't just read about miracles. We serve a God who still performs and does the miraculous. And it would be our humble honor if you're in a season where you need God to move in a, set, in a space where you cannot fix, you cannot change, you cannot transform. Well, we, we would love to bring you before the King of Kings and appeal to Him. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, we believe that there's reason to believe. And we invite you to His manger and to His cross this season so that you can experience forgiveness in new life. Whatever it is the Lord would have you do, you move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.